Good morning, everyone. So good to see each of you here in the house of the Lord. We're continuing in our series of messages from the letter of 2 Corinthians, this treasure in jars of clay. I have been in the Christian faith for a long time. I was six years old when I first came to know Christ. I still vaguely remember, but I do remember what my mindset was before that moment. Don't have a huge treasure trove of memories from that first six years of my life, but I do remember very distinctly not being terribly interested in church, even though my dad was a pastor and we were there every Sunday. I just wanted to play and eat candy. Um, and I also remember very clearly that I had no sense of remorse or anything about lying that you know if I, I was I was an active child and prone to get in trouble and I remember distinctly that I wouldn't bat an eye if my dad confronted me about something I would lie about it and it it, it was meaningless to me I would just you know hey if I can get out of trouble without having to be punished then hey I, it never crossed my mind as, as a problem. All that changed one morning. We lived in this high-rise apartment. How many stories was it, Reuben? Ten stories. We lived on the seventh floor, is that right? You call it eight. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, multiple apartments on each, and at the bottom there was a little playground area that was part of the building. So you would you imagine, normally you went down there, it was covered in kids. There were a bunch of kids there playing all the time. But I remember one day I went down to that park, and there was absolutely nobody there. So I just sat on the ledge. And I don't know how else to describe it, except that I sensed, I didn't hear voices or anything, but I sensed very clearly that God was saying, I want to come into your heart. And I remember I said, yes. I didn't know what I was getting into at the moment, but I do remember very distinctly the moment I realized something was very different now. Not long after that, and I don't know dates, but not long after that, I did something I shouldn't have done, something bad, and I remember my father took Reuben and me, and he was grilling us both to try to figure out who had done this. And I found myself saying, Dad, don't punish Reuben, punish me. I did it. I had never done that before. And it wasn't that my dad had said, oh, now that you're a Christian, you have to blah, blah, blah. No, suddenly something inside was different. And for some reason, I couldn't even explain at that age, I suddenly didn't want to do something I used to do without thinking. The new life that we come to in Christ is what Paul is talking about in the text we're looking at today. And I've mentioned just one tiny evidence of that in my own experience. I assume you have many similar experiences yourself. But this is what Paul is talking about in today's text. I've uh, titled, do you all have the right stuff up there? 
I've titled the message, The Life of a New Creation, and we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Let me read verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we are persuading people, but we are well known to God. I've said this often. Anytime you start a verse with therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. Uh, So let's remember what we were looking at last week in the final verses of last week's passage. It's where Jesus talks about us all having to come before the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. And we will all give an answer and give an account to God of the life we've lived and the things we have accomplished in this life, whether good or evil. And, and that is the background for this continuation of the thought. Therefore, given that we know that we are going to come face to face before Christ, and in those verses before this, he's talked about my ambition in life, my uh, desire, the, the thing I aspire to in life is to be found pleasing to Jesus. And I'm progressing in this life toward that moment of accounting that I know is coming. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and the fear of the Lord is something we find mentioned throughout the Bible, and it's more than just reverence. It is a profound sense of reverence toward God, but it goes deeper than mere reverence. There is something, and when you get to know God, and you know who he is, and you enter into this knowledge of him that is an experiential knowledge, you know both how loving and compassionate and merciful he is, but you also know that he burns with a white-hot rage against sin. And that every abuse, every failure to love perfectly wounds him deeply. And that he looks at every abuse of the weak and innocent. And he is the defender of the weak. And we come to recognize that God is not just some fluffy teddy bear. That God is a consuming fire. And that we will give an account to this God for the life we've lived. That's what Paul's talking about when he says we know the fear of the Lord. We have a a profound desire to honor the God who gave us life. What does that translate to in Paul's living? We are persuading people. Paul was an evangelist and missionary. He devoted his life to going and finding people who did not yet know about Jesus and sharing the good news that there is redemption and life in Christ and doing everything in his power to persuade people to be reconciled to Christ. He, developed, uh, he devoted his life to this task of persuasion. And he says, but we are well known to God. I think we need to remember the background of this letter that Paul is writing to a church he started uh, a few years back. He spent 18 months in Corinth and founded a church there. And since he has left and has just wrapped up two and a half years of the most powerful ministry he's experienced in his life in the city of Ephesus. Uh, And while he's been out of Corinth, other people 
come in and these people are trying to peddle a different version of the Christian faith. And to do that, they have to discredit Paul first explain the gospel to them. Uh, so they're trying to uh, undermine Paul, convince people that Paul is of no importance, that he's uh, worthless, that he, he writes really strong letters, but when you see him in person, there's nothing to it. And uh, they're trying to uh, get the people in Corinth to turn away, not so much from Paul, but from Paul's gospel, from Paul's grasp of what it means to live life in Christ because they have a different version of that they want the church to adopt. So Paul, in writing this letter, a big concern of his throughout the letter is to answer this, not uh, to defend himself so much as to uh, frustrate the attempts of these false teachers uh, of, of guiding the church away from a genuine understanding of the gospel. So he's talking about this. We know the fear of the Lord and we have devoted ourselves to persuading people to accept this message of life and we are well known to God. You may have been hearing all kinds of things about us and people may have all kinds of opinions about us but God knows full well what's going on with us. Paul says, I'm doing my ministry not based on likes, not based on follows, I'm doing it based on Christ who called me and God knows full well what I'm up to and what's going on and he knows my heart and my motivations and my actions. He knows all of it. One of the problems when we focus not on that but on the externals that others are, are observing, we can create this double life and we see it all the time. People who are in positions of leadership in the church life uh, who we discover years later had this complete double life, this public persona that looks spotless and then on the inside there's abuse of children, stealing the tithes and offerings of people, all these kinds of things that should never go on. And you wonder sometimes, don't these people realize that they are well known by God Almighty and that they will answer to him for everything they've done in this life. And it's easy to be uh, offended by other people, but let's, let's take it inside. Do I live my life with the idea that I am well known to God? Or do I live it trying to put up this image for others to see of what my life is? And as long as I'm fooling others, that's fine. Who cares about the others? You're never going to come before the judgment seat of any of them. You don't owe yourself to any of them. They did not give you the gift of life. And they do not demand an accounting from you. God does. Verse 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you a cause for boasting about us to have before those who boast in appearance, not in the heart. For if we have lost our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. 
So again, I think the background of this is these false teachers who've infiltrated the church. And what I think is this is a first century version of the health and wealth gospel. It's a first century version of a triumphalist, exterior, uh, exterior focused Christian life where you need to look to those observing from the outside like you've got it all together, like you're healthy and wealthy and powerful and glorious on the terms of this world. I believe that's the kind of Christian faith they're peddling. Notice, if that's the case, how deliberately Paul is dismantling that in this letter. He keeps talking about shortcomings and weakness and afflictions and suffering. He's told them in chapter 1, verse 8, we had a thing come on us recently that was so overwhelming, so utterly, inconceivably, beyond our strength that we despaired of living. That's not the kind of thing you hear health and wealth preachers say. They're always on top of things. They're always victorious. They win every battle. And Paul is talking about things that look like failure. Weakness, frailty, poverty. So Paul says, what we're doing here, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again. The reason Paul is writing this letter is not wounded pride. He's not curating this uh, influencer persona. Paul genuinely wants to protect this congregation from a false version of the Christian faith. And as far as Paul's concerned, he doesn't really care what that amounts to in terms of his personal benefit or cost in the matter. So we're not, it's not that we're commending ourselves to you. What I'm trying to do is give you a different approach to boasting. You'll find that that's a, a very prominent word in 2 Corinthians, boasting. And I believe it's a prominent word in 2 Corinthians because that is what these false teachers in Corinth are doing. They are very boastful and very arrogant and very proud of their version of what it should look like to be a Christian. And I want you to notice both the things Paul says they're boasting in and the way he subverts that with the way he starts boasting. The kinds of things Paul boasts about are the kinds of things these other folks would be embarrassed to admit. We want you to boast about the kinds of things I'm talking to you about. Weakness and suffering and affliction and the hardship that is involved in doing the work Christ has laid before us and this reality of an outer man that is falling apart while there's an inner man who is getting more glorious day by day. That's the thing I want you to be boasting about. Not the stuff these other folks are boasting about. These guys who boast in appearance, in the externals, not in the heart. See, Paul is uh, showing uh, the very clear reality of an external image of something falling apart, deteriorating. Paul is literally, physically spending his life in his work for the gospel. Every time he gets flogged, his body is a little more broken. 
Every beating he takes, his body carries those wounds and scars. And externally, Paul is weaker day by day. He is falling apart, but he doesn't care. Because in all of that, there's a trajectory internally that is going in the exact opposite direction. And through all of that, God is using the affliction and building glory in his, in his soul, in his heart, in the unseen part. When we talked last week, he's talking about the seen and the unseen the outer and the inner. And there are people who boast on the external. There are people who boast in numbers, in buildings, in programs. There are people who boast in the external metrics of things. There are people whose boasting is no different than the boasting of an atheist who owns a company. Paul says, I want you to have an answer to people who are boasting in that kind of thing, but have nothing to say about what Christ has done in the heart because it's unchanged, because there's nothing going on there. There are things God is up to in our souls that are not obvious externally. Paul says, I'm calling you to a genuine Christian faith, not an external appearance of faith. I want you to learn to boast about the right things. Boast about what God is doing. Not what you've accomplished. Boast in what God is up to in your heart. Not in some external front He says, if we've lost our minds, it's for God. Some people think that Paul here is quoting an accusation from his enemies in in Corinth. They're saying, Paul's just crazy. He's lost his mind. He's, He's talking nonsense. What do you mean embrace suffering? Christ came so we wouldn't suffer, right? Paul actually doesn't back away from it. Okay, yeah. We have lost our minds from from the perspective of the world we live in. We are absolutely crazy. It makes no sense to somebody who is not being uh, transformed by Christ. The kind of priorities we now have, the things we are pursuing, the goals we have in life, and the way we as human beings are behaving in this world makes no sense. It's like we've lost our minds. And yes, we have done so because of God. God has changed everything about us. And we no longer think the way we used to. We no longer behave the way we used to. And to people who have not experienced that, it looks like we have lost our minds. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. Paul, this is likely Paul's fourth letter to the Corinthian church. Two of them were lost. Um, but he mentions other letters in his letters that we do have. Uh, and Paul has been making a, a concerted effort to communicate with this church in Corinth and to instruct them and to do so not in some crazy, wacky, irrational, bizarre, let me tell you about all these visions and let's, let's uh, follow, let's chase after this dream I had and none of that stuff. Notice how reasonably Paul communicates 
the information he communicates. And he doesn't use weird uh, things. He just uh, says things honestly and openly and plainly, although, uh, of course, some of the things he's saying are very profound. But Paul is no proponent of an irrational faith. Paul, when it comes to the Corinthians, has done everything he can to put into rational, understandable concepts the realities that are going on in Christ. If we are of sound mind, it's for your benefit. And we are trying to translate for you uh, who are still struggling with this old mindset, what this new mindset is about. I want you to think about this idea of boasting. What about yourself do you want others to see and admire? Is it your house? Your career? Your degrees? What is your boast in life? Let's keep going. Verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us, having judged this, that one died for all. Therefore, all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. I love Paul. I, I find him so inspiring and challenging because I see him from the moment he comes to faith, and I know there are years of his life we don't know anything about, but from the minute he appears in the, the work that we see in the book of Acts and, and he starts writing the letters that we have of him, uh, he is very clearly a man who is driven and who is purposeful and never seems to have let up. He never seems to have taken his foot off of the gas pedal. He was committed 100% through and through to the very last moment. And I find that challenging and inspiring. And I often wonder, what drove Paul? What sustained him through the hardships and difficulties that he had to face? What kept him going through the heartache and the betrayals? And I love that he tells us in his own words, the love of Christ compels us. That word has a, a multiple a number of meanings. It can mean compel as in it forces you, it pushes you, it, it uh, makes you do something, but it can also have the idea of binding or constraining or tying you up. And some translations say the love of Christ constrains us. And it's the idea that I am tied up by this, I am bound, I am uh, compelled by this, and uh, it, it, it governs everything about what I'm up to. There are at least two ways we could read this love of Christ. As Paul's saying that it is my love for Christ that compels and constrains me. I think more likely it's the other way around. It is Christ's love for Paul that compels and constrains him. Let's remember that Paul was an enemy of Christ. He was going out of his way to eradicate Christianity from the face of the earth. He was demanding letters of authority to travel to neighboring cities from Jerusalem so that he could arrest Christians and lock them up or kill them. 
And it was in that uh, journey to carry out that very thing that he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. And what he discovered from this man he was persecuting. Why, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? He discovered that Christ did not hate him, but that he welcomed him in love. That broke Paul's heart to be loved in, in such an unworthy situation. And the fact that Christ loved him, I don't think Paul ever got over that. And that love that he opened himself up to when he surrendered to Christ, that love has now taken over Paul's life. The love of Christ constrains, compels him. If he is driven by anything, it's the love of Christ. It's not ambition. He's not trying to build an empire. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He's not trying to accomplish anything. But pay heed to the demands of the love of Christ. He says, that's, that's the thing I can't walk away from. I can't do anything else. But, but surrender to this love of Christ. What does that look like in Paul's life? Well, he says, here's what we've realized. We have judged. We have evaluated. And this is the conclusion. One died for all. Jesus, when he died on the cross, was taking on death, taking on divine wrath against sin, not just for a few people, but for everyone. And I'm sorry, my particular Baptist, but I don't agree. He didn't just die for the elect. He died for the world. And he gave his life for all not just people who would need it after him, but going back in time to the first human beings who ever walked the earth, going back to the days of Adam and Eve, and going forward, not even to our day, but even further until the last human being is born. He died for all. That's the only way anybody could ever be saved. The only way even people like Abraham or Noah or Moses or Joshua could be made right with God. Christ had to pay for the sin. He did that at the cross. One died for all. Therefore, what does that mean? It means we are all dead. He didn't die for a few. He didn't die for the worst of us. He died for all of us because we were all already toast. We had all already ruined it. We had all already condemned ourselves and destroyed our connection with God and we were already dead. What does that mean about everybody around us who doesn't know Christ? They're not just mistaken. They're not just misinformed. They're dead. Paul carried the burden of that, of looking out at people and saying, they're not just my enemies, they're not just angry at me, they're, they're not just confused, they're not just as good theologians as I am. They're dead. And Jesus died so they didn't have to be that. 
He died. He died for all so that those who live, and notice there is a distinction. There's the all and there's a subset of the all which is those who live. He died to make possible that all could live. But not everybody wants that. Not everybody embraces that. But those who embrace it, those who receive it, those who live, what is he trying to do in the life of somebody who surrenders to his redemption? That we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him. He died so that we could stop living the way we were living. This is the core definition of sin. God created us for himself. And when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he entrusted oversight of all creation to them. And God walked in the garden with them. And together they governed creation. That was the design. They were to be partners with God in the oversight of creation. But what happened? The serpent convinced Eve, you know what? You don't really need God. You should be God. You don't need to govern creation together with God. Just do it on your own. Why do you need God at all? That's the core nature of sin. Each one of us has said, God, I am not going to partner with you in this life. I am not going to let you be God and me, the creature who is grateful to have life and shares life with God in gratitude and trust. I'm not going to be that. I am going to be God. And I don't care what you're going to do, God, but I'm going to be my own God and I'm going to live my own life and I'm going to do my own thing. And what happens when we do that? It destroys our relationship with God, but it also destroys ability to have the kind of relationship with each other God created us for. That's why our relationships, every single one of them, are twisted up and knotted and difficult and confusing. It's hard for us to relate to God. It's hard for us to relate to each other because sin has robbed us of the ease for communion that we were created for. So, Jesus died for all so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them, for Jesus himself, and was raised. When we uh, reorient our hearts, and I'm no longer living for myself, but I have surrendered to re rescue and redemption by Christ, and now my living is for him, then everything changes. And then the, the, the fracturing of sin begins to be healed. We begin to be brought back into communion with God and with each other. That is the work of Christ, to restore that brokenness. Let me ask you, Paul's told us what drives him. What drives you in life? Be honest. Just think to yourself, what, what drives my life? Is it career? Family? Is it the love of Christ? What impact does Christ's love have on the way you live your life? 
Verse 16, thus from now on we know no one according to the flesh. Even should we have known Christ according to the flesh, we no longer know him in this way. So if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Paul says, if we are now in Christ and we are now living for him, not for ourselves, what does that change about the way we are? Well, uh, first of all, he says, we don't know anybody the way we used to. I want to uh, continue to reiterate. I think Paul is often misunderstood in his terminology when he uses the term the flesh. And I think we, unfortunately, this side of platonic influences... uh, tend to think of a, in a very dualistic way about the human nature, like there's a body that is bad and a spirit that is good. That's the way Plato, if I boil it down to a very simple explanation, that's kind of Plato's approach, and we tend to fall into that, and we think when Paul says that we should walk not in the flesh but in the spirit, that uh, we forget that that spirit needs to be capitalized and we think it's really the difference about do I focus on the things my body is wanting like physical appetites, hunger, uh, gluttony, sexual appetites, uh, all those kinds of things. Do I focus on that or do I focus on matters of the spirit, meditating and praying and thinking pretty thoughts? That's not what Paul's talking about. For Paul, the flesh involves things like jealousy. You know that jealousy is a, is a sin or a, a weakness or a, a twisting of the soul, not the body. Jealousy is not a physical impulse. It's a spiritual malady. Paul uses these terms to talk about what he means when he says the flesh. If you are still fighting one another, aren't you still fleshly? People of the flesh. So for Paul, flesh is kind of his shorthand for everything we are if we take God out of the picture. That's, and in his mind, you're just animated meat because there's no true life there. You are the walking dead. So for him, the term the flesh is everything I am apart from God. Everything, and that's spiritual, mental, physical, uh, soul, mind, body, spirit, all of that. Everything that I am minus God, that is flesh. There was a way we used to evaluate and know things. There was a way we knew people before Christ. That is the way Paul describes as knowing according to the flesh. In other words, you evaluate your relationships based on everything you bring to the table and everything you have acquired and everything you know, and that is how you evaluate and get to know people around you. And those are the frameworks with which you operate in relationships. Paul says, if we're in Christ... There's not a single person on the face of the earth that we know the way we used to know people. Christ changes the way we know every single other person we know. It's not the same. Even Christ, 
Some people think here he's talking about people who have been uh, physical eyewitnesses to his earthly ministry, but I think it's more than that. I think it applies to even us today who have never physically known Christ, but I knew Christ a different way before I came to know him personally than I know him now. People know about Jesus. People have an opinion about him. They know something of his historical reality and have some opinion about whether he is or is not the Son of God, whether he did or did not die on a cross, and whether he did or did not rise from the grave. Everybody's got some opinion that they arrived at based on the information they had available to them. That's the way they knew Christ. Once you encounter Christ face to face, the way Paul did on the road to Damascus. He knew a lot about Christ. But the moment he encountered Christ face to face, he no longer knew Christ the way he did before. We don't even know Jesus the way we used to. How to explain it? Well, if anyone, so this isn't just the experience of a few. This is the experience of every single person who puts his faith in Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. It's like God took, again, a lump of clay and breathed the breath of life into it. It is the start of a new you. It's not fully formed yet. But there's a definite before and after. There's a definite this is what it was and this is what it is now. Paul says, the old has passed away. Open your eyes. The new is here. What is Paul trying to say with all of this? What he's saying is we have to get rid of, we have to release, we have to open our hands and let go of the old way of being human. The old way of thinking about people and God. The old way of relating to people. This is the way I used to do it. I cannot continue to do it that way anymore. Because the old is done. I need to open up to the new. And really what Paul is facing with his opponents in Corinth is people who are trying to resurrect into the Christian faith the old pattern of living. And Paul is desperately pleading with the church, don't fall for it. The old is dead. In Christ there is this whole new. Embrace it. Live it. What aspects of your life do you find hardest to leave behind? What are the, the you that Paul would describe as the flesh? What you were before Christ? What bits of that do you have a hard time letting go of? What aspects of this new life do you struggle to embrace? Verse 18, all these things are from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the service of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and assigning to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we work for Christ as ambassadors, as God is pleading through us. We beg on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The one who knew no sin, he made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Talking about leaving the old behind and embracing the new. Paul says all of this, all these things I'm talking about, they're from God. This, some people say Paul invented Christianity. That's hogwash, to quote my dad. That's nonsense. Malarkey, that's another one my dad would use. It's, it's not, he did not invent anything. In fact, he had a very different plan for life when Christ threw everything out the window. And all of the things he communicates in his letters are things that God is bringing into his heart and life and they are in full accord with everything God's been doing through uh, thousands of human beings, millions of human beings through the history of humankind and things recorded in prior scriptures are very much in the same line of God's activity as the letters Paul is writing. And Paul didn't invent the Christian faith. God put it together over 1,500 years using a whole bunch of different people. And Paul was just one of them. These things are not from Paul. They're from God. This stuff is God's idea, God's plan. And what has God done? He has reconciled us to himself through Christ. You may not realize this, but our problem, the problem of sin, is that we are at war with God. We were created to share with God in the governance of creation, and the moment we said, I'm not going to share squat with anyone, I'm going to do it all myself. I am going to be God of my life, and you do what you want with your life, God, and I will do what I want with my life, thank you very much. We all made that same decision, and we severed ourselves from our Creator. We were created for Him, and we said, no thanks. I don't want to be here for you. I want to be here for me. What did Christ accomplish? He restored a broken relationship. We had spurned God. We had despised him. We had turned away from him. And Christ has reconciled us back. He has healed a broken relationship. Notice how Paul never leaves it at that. The moment we were reconciled to God was the moment we were entrusted with the service of reconciliation. I love Paul's word choice here. I translated that service of reconciliation rather than ministry of reconciliation because I think Paul is very deliberate in the words he chooses. There are two Greek words that we would translate service. One is liturgia. Uh, and that uh, is service, but it, it's a very particular kind of service. It's the kind of service that a government official would carry out or a priest in a cultic setting. 
so the proper translation of liturgia into modern day English would be ministry because we use that word to refer to people who are offering a service both in governmental positions as in prime minister and in religious contexts as in a minister, a pastor, a priest in a church or congregation. Uh, so that's exactly what that word would be in English. But the word diaconia does not have those kinds of restrictions. You do not have to be a government official. You don't have to be a priest or somehow authorized to carry out diaconia because diaconia is what somebody would do when you came into a home, the slave of the house would come and wash your feet. That is diaconia. You would sit at the table and somebody would come and serve you your food and drink. That is diaconia. It's just plain and simple service. There's no requirements, no prerequisites. Paul chooses that word and I think it's because he wants us to understand that when he says that Christ has given to us this service of reconciliation, this is not something he entrusted to super important Christians. This is not something for evangelists, apostles, and missionaries. He doesn't use the more restrictive term. He doesn't say ministry. He just says service. Because this is something Christ has entrusted to all of us. There are no limitations. There are no prerequisites. It's just plain and simple. A service of reconciliation. In other words, everybody who comes to Christ is immediately commissioned to participate in the work of reconciliation. In fact, that's what God was doing on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. Let me say a small aside here. I used to share in this opinion that there was some kind of a divide on the cross that when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because for a moment, and this is the image we use even though it's not in the Bible, the father turned his face away. The father turned his back to the son on the cross and he was alone uh, in that moment of bearing the sins of the world. I used to think that until somebody pointed this verse out to me. God was in Christ reconciling the cosmos to himself. I don't think there was ever any division. And I think as the Father was pouring out the fullness of divine wrath against all sin, they were together in this, Father pouring it out and Son receiving. But there was no separation. And I think when Jesus quotes that verse on the cross, he means for us to go back and read the whole psalm, which begins in despair and ends in saying, all the peoples of the earth will come to know your glory, God. And he's, he's pointing to what's being accomplished in that moment, not saying that somehow the Father has abandoned him. If not, why would he say at the end, into your hands I commit my spirit. God was in Christ, and I don't think the suffering was only the Son. I think the full Godhead suffered fully what was happening on the cross. And what was God doing? Reconciling a, a whole cosmos, a whole creation that was broken by sin. Making it so that he would not have to count our trespasses against us. 
trespasses. That's, you know, there's a line you're not supposed to cross, and you cross it, and you say, I'm not a trespasser. Let me, let's leave out all the written laws of God. Let's just go with the unwritten laws of God. God put in your heart a conscience, right? A little voice inside that says, you know, you should probably do that. I know you don't want to, but you really ought to do that. Do you always do what that voice tells you to do? Or do you sometimes trespass its instruction? Or maybe that voice says, you know, you really shouldn't do that. That's really not something you should do. That's not right. And you say, I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. We are all trespassers. And we don't need the Bible to know that. The Bible helps Sometimes we create ridiculous blind spots for ourselves, and the Bible helps illuminate all that. But even without all of that, we're trespassers, and Christ on the cross was accomplishing the absolution of all trespasses. And again, notice, there's this forgiveness and the restoration of our relationship with God, and Paul immediately tags on, and Jesus did this too. When asked, what's the great commandment? Love God. Notice he didn't stop. He said, but you can't take that one without the second one. Love your neighbor. Paul does the same. He's not counting your trespasses against them and assigning to us the message of reconciliation. So we are reconciled to God and immediately are sent out to begin reconciling everybody else. What does that mean? That means we are ambassadors. And the work we do in this life is the work of ambassadors for Christ because God is broken hearted about every single lost person around us. And he is not sitting up there twiddling his thumbs waiting for when he decides it's time to call the, the end of this. He is right here with us and he is seeing it and he is pleading through us. We are begging on Christ's behalf. That's how God feels about this. He is absolutely pleading, please give up on this path to utter ruin and destruction. Take the life I'm offering freely. We are pleading on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. I think it's important to understand the Christian life as a life committed to the task of reconciliation. It's, I still can't figure out how we got to this point. But in this country, we're at a point where in some churches, to say reconciliation immediately puts you in the questionable camp. Like you're talking about something unbiblical. Because the world is certainly interested in this topic, and there's been a whole lot of discussion in our lives over the past few decades about the idea of reconciliation between races, where offenses have happened, and abuses have happened, and, and uh, new abuses continue to happen, and, and some people are, are saying, uh, we, we don't want to have anything to do with any of that. Reconciliation is not a bad word. 
It's the whole life we've been called to. That's why we as a church are doing the kind of stuff we're doing. We could be another segregated Anglo church like so many. Happy to serve our own needs. Living our lives for ourselves. And oblivious to the world around us that is dying. But if the love of Christ compels us. And Christ loves people that are very different from ourselves. And Christ is calling us to be ambassadors for reconciliation in a world broken by sin. Then how can we as the church not be a picture on earth of what reconciliation is supposed to look like? We can't just tell people, go find a church more like yourself. We have to do whatever we have to do to be that church for whoever God brings to our door. And it's hard work. It's hard to learn to love and know people who don't share your cultural background, who their concept of time is radically different than yours. Their understanding of how relationships are supposed to function is completely different from yours. And they seem rude and insensitive and wildly wrong about all kinds of things and because their culture is so different. Learning to know each other and to love each other when language is a barrier. And that takes some serious work. Some serious willingness to step outside of my own comfortable little circle that I built for myself. But that is the work we have been called to in Christ. Reconciliation. The world. One died for all, so that all might be reconciled. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that the world around us has the answer to how reconciliation should happen. True, we, we shouldn't just parrot whatever solution the world is trying to offer us because it won't work. But we can never be found arguing against reconciliation. It's the heart of the gospel. We have to figure it out. And what we should be is not dragging our feet at the back of the line. We should be leading the charge. We should be at the front. Showing the world how it happens. Because that is what God has done in Christ. Our ministry, our service is a service of reconciliation and it begins with being reconciled to God. That's the only thing that can change a human heart and make it adequate for human relationships. We as Christians are trying to learn how humans are supposed to relate to each other. That's why we gather together to worship. We don't sit at home watching it on YouTube because we are meant to do this together. That's why we open up our homes and carve out time every week for each other because we are supposed to do this together. And you cannot build relationships long distance. You cannot build relationships without making time for each other. What evidences of reconciliation, have you seen Jesus work in your life? 
Where is he leading you next? In this trajectory that is counter to the deteriorating outer man. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It is a whole new life. The old self-centered way is gone. We no longer think of ourselves or of anyone around us the way we used to. We can't even think of Jesus the way we used to. All that old stuff is gone and good riddance. It was awful. That's why we came to Jesus. We were dead. But Jesus died to create us anew, to give us life, to make all things new. So bye-bye to the old and hello to the new. The new heart is a heart reconciled to God that is now captivated by his love. And this love drives us to spread this message of reconciliation far and wide. We seek a mending of hurts. We seek a healing of wounds with God and with everyone else around us. If God wants to be reconciled to everyone, then so do we. We invite others to start by being reconciled to God, who will begin the process of reconciling us to each other. When we surrender to this, Jesus takes all our wrong and instead gives us all his right. Are you living this new life in Christ? We're going to have a song. And this is our time in the service where we can respond to God's word. There will be people here at the front on either side to take your hand. And what I want to ask you to do is prayerfully consider, is God asking me to commit something with him today? Maybe you haven't begun the walk with Christ. You only know him as Paul would describe according to the flesh. And today is the day that needs to change. You need to come to know Jesus personally. You need to surrender yourself to him. If that's you this morning, I invite you to come forward and say that. I need to surrender my life to Christ. Maybe you already know him. Today's been a reminder that you have been misguided, misleaded. You have focused inward rather than outward. And you are not an ambassador for Christ in this life. You have been living your life as a Christian in the wrong way. If that's you, come and say, I need to repent. These people here are here to hear whatever God's put on your heart and pray with you and encourage you. Take advantage of this. Stand and come while we sing.